We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. It's, uh, it was neat to hear that our church has been participating in Operation Christmas Child for now going on 18 years. And thank you to all who have done this through the years and will do it again this year. Our church has a rich heritage, going back to really the, almost the founding of our church, of participating in spreading the gospel uh, throughout Brevard County, the state of Florida, and around the world. Um, at times in the history of our church, uh, about 25% of all the funds that came in were going out in some way or another to impact the kingdom. Some of that money was going out towards uh, supporting missionaries who were going to hard to reach places, uh, uh, men who were sent to RTS to become pastors and uh, are now in the ministry today, um, supporting different works within our denomination and, uh, and then helping people in our own backyard, ministries that we've partnered with through the years, uh, the homeless shelter and the pregnancy resources and different ministries that are, are tangibly bringing the good news of Jesus Christ to those in need in our community. And so this is our heritage. And about 10 years ago, 11 years ago, the elders began to, to look at how we were doing things and we refined this. We, we brought a little more laser focus to how we are doing missions. We, we divided it into local missions and cross-cultural missions or global missions. Local missions is uh, our efforts to help our people in Brevard County. And so these are, there's various ministry partners that we have. And every time you give in our weekly offering to your tithes, uh, a portion of that money goes to help people in our own backyard. When you give to the Mercy Fund, these are local missions that we bring the gospel and word and deed to people <clears throat> in Brevard County. Excuse me. <clears throat> 
At that time, we also uh, hived off, I guess to say, we, we, we applied a little more uh, intentionality to what we would call global cross-cultural missions. The elders worked for about a year on this, designing and, and putting on paper, how were we going to participate in spreading the gospel around the world? And that, that document and that philosophy has guided our missions team for the last 10 years. And the way we fund global missions is not from your tithe it, or, and, or from a mercy offering. It's through faith promise giving. Uh, what we do globally is found here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. There's a biblical basis for why we do it like this. Uh, I believe it's scriptural. It's something that churches have been doing for that I know of at least a couple of hundred years, maybe longer. But I think by what the, the, the passage shows us, it, the principles are already back into the original founding of the church. I've also experienced it myself uh, on a number of levels, really all the way back to my childhood. My, you know, God got my dad's heart in 1965. It took a few more years for him to get his wallet, <laughs> as is often the case uh, in our spiritual progression. Uh, in about, I think it was about 1970, uh, my uh, home church was going to move to an, and build new facilities. At that time, the facilities were like going to be $7 million. Can you, those of you who lived, you know how much $7 million was in 1970, right? That was a lot of money. It's a lot of money now, but it was a really, yeah. And, and so they, they, the church used, we didn't have fund, you know, people who will come in, consultants like we do nowadays. Uh, the pastor just stood up and he preached through 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And they used faith promise, the principles of faith promise, and to challenge the people to take steps of faith, in this case, to build this new, these new facilities. Uh, my dad uh, did what faith promise demands. It starts with prayer. And he began to pray and he began to ask God, what should I be, what should I do here, Lord? And, and you got to understand my dad was a little tight, okay? He was born before the depression, you know, full German upbringing. He, he was just tight, okay? And, but God, uh, he, he sincerely began to pray and, and God said, to, and led him to say, and he came to the family, he goes, I think God wants us to give $1,000 towards this building program. Now, you gotta understand, I mean, I sound like much today, but back then, that was 20% of my dad's income. If he had a job, <laughs> he was out of work. Uh, we were hanging on by our finger, family of six I mean, we were hanging on by our fingernails. I mean, you know, ladies, you know how you can sometimes say a, a, a good chicken, you can get one or two meals out of a good chicken. My mom could get like four or five meals out of a chicken because that's just how bad it was at the time. And so I never will forget, uh, one day my dad got me and put me in the car and we went down to the Atlantic Bank in Jacksonville. And in the car, he said, son, we're gonna go into this bank I don't, it's probably not gonna work, but I feel like the Lord wants me to go into this bank and ask the banker for a loan of $1,000. And uh, you know, the banker sitting here in front of me and who gave out a lot of loans. How many loans do you give to people who are unemployed, Bob? Zero, he's holding up a zero, right? And, and so he walks in, my dad had been a credit manager. And so he sat down in front of the, the banker and he says, I have a request for you. You're probably gonna say no, I wouldn't fulfill, I would not give me this money, but I need a thousand dollars to give to my church and I'll pay it back, I promise. <laughs> he walked out with a thousand dollars. He was flabbergasted, my dad was, he just like, how did that happen? I don't understand how this happened. Two months later, my dad got a job. Once again, the base salary, $5,000. Not a whole lot of money. 
He tithed, uh, he'd been tithing for a few years, so 10% came off of that and went to the church. Uh, he, you know, he gave a little bit extra for you know, missions and things, and, uh, but now he has $1,000, but this new job had a bonus program. And in the first year, he maxed out his bonus and the amount was $1,000. Isn't that cool? And, and that set my dad off on a course. You know, my dad was not a great theologian, uh, he, he could not stand up and teach you or lead small groups or things like that. He was just, uh, he would share his faith. He was an evangelist and he gave. And for the next 40 years, he lit, found out the important truth of what's contained in this passage this morning. He gave 10% to his church, a tithe to his church so that they could operate and do the ministries of the church that are done like we see here at Covenant Church. By the time of his death, I know because I looked through his records for at least 20 years, he had given more 10% or more to the faith promise ministry of the church because our church and all succeeding churches use faith promise and missions. And he gave more than that. He, he did not leave us an inheritance. He spent all the money on God's kingdom. And you know what? He left us a rich inheritance because there's some inheritances that are more important than money. He learned a biblical principle early in his Christian walk that guided him and shaped him for the rest of his Christian life. That God blesses individuals and churches who further his kingdom work through faith promise giving. Now that can sound a little bit, you know, prosperity gospelish, right? And it's not though. And there's just important differences and distinctions between this truth that you see in 2 Corinthians 8 through faith promise and the things that we see in our world today and the claims of the prosperity gospel. And, and I'll try to highlight some of that this morning, but I, I don't apologize for this statement. It's true. I could tell you story after story, going back to childhood all the way into our church today of people and myself who've experienced the truth of this passage when it comes to faith promise giving. Instead of telling you a lot of stories this morning, though, I think it's time for us to go back to God's word. It's been a long time since we've walked through 2 Corinthians 8. So for some of you, this is a, a much needed refresher course. For some of us, it, it's still needed because, you know, the, the, the vast majority of our member families still don't participate in our missions ministry here. And I want you to change that behavior today. I want you to begin to participate, even if it's just taking a first initial step of faith. Because this passage is important to your Christian life. For some of you, it's the first time you're ever going to hear it. So I hope that you'll come to it with open uh, hearts and open ears. And let me introduce to you to some, something to you that I promise it will change your life. You will see God work through you in ways that you never, ever imagined. Now, for those of you who like to keep an outline, we're just going to have two simple points. Two questions we're going to answer this morning. First question is essentially this. What is the historical context behind this passage? We want to make sure that we're not taking things out of context this morning, that we're being faithful to God's word. And then secondly, we want to answer the question from this passage. Why is it that God blesses churches and individuals who further his kingdom work when they participate in faith promise giving? Okay, so let's start with the historical context. Um, there was a great need. The church in Jerusalem was in trouble. 
Uh, they had gone through several years of persecution. Now they had extensive famine and the church was taking a lot of body blows and they were hanging on by their fingernails. And so here the mother church, the church of Jerusalem that had sent out the apostles and they had begun planting churches throughout the Mediterranean world and Africa and all the way over towards India, they needed help. So the apostle Paul, he contacts all the churches that he had planted and started and had grown out of those initial church plants in the Mediterranean world. He makes the need known to them and he says, listen, I want you to help the church in Jerusalem. I want you to take a step of faith and begin to lay aside money for an offering. He solicited from them, elicited from them promises of amounts. I, you know, the church in Philippi, X amount. The church in Macedonia, Y amount. The church in Corinth, Z amount, right? And he said, next year I'm going to come through and I'm going to collect these offerings. Now, now, this was a challenge to these folks. Some of these folks were also in very difficult times. And he's asking them to make a promise to do something a year from now. That, that's a step of faith because as we've just seen this last year, you never know what's going to happen in one year, right? I mean, how do I mean, good night, 2020. Who, who of us could have imagined what we've gone through this year? And, and, and honestly, church, this is mild compared to what would happen in the ancient world where you could go to bed at night and wake up the next morning and a plague would wipe out half your town. So, you know, they lived in hard times and planning a year out was a risky move. And so he was challenging their faith for an offering that was above their tithe that they would normally give to their local church. That's the context. This is why he's writing this letter. The Corinthians, he was a little concerned about. And this is ironic because they are the wealthiest, probably the wealthiest church, maybe outside of the church in Rome, but or rivaled it. This church was extremely wealthy. And so what Paul does is he's saying to this wealthy church, hey, you made promises to help. I'm reminding you of this. We're coming for that money. Are you ready? And what he does is something very clever. He gives them an illustration of a church that's much poorer, the Macedonian church. Essentially, if Paul was writing this letter today, he would write it to the church in America, and he'd say, hey guys, you promised this need. Um, and by the way, let me tell you about the church in India. Let me tell you what Ken Tombing and those churches are doing right now for this need. And, and, and we all know that the, the economic status between our church and the churches in Ken Tombing's region of India, it's vastly, vastly different you know, when the average income there is $480 a year compared to us, right? This is what he's doing here, okay? That's the historical context. Now, why? Why does God bless individual churches who further his kingdom work through faith promise giving? I want to give you four reasons why this morning. First of all, faith promise starts with our hearts right? And verse two says, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty, in other words, the Macedonian church have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, 
not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. There's several phrases in these verses that help us understand the condition of the Macedonians' hearts towards this giving opportunity that they had. Verse two tells us they had an abundance of joy. There was a wealth of generosity. Verse four has the words that every pastor who ever lives has been waiting to hear, begging earnestly for the opportunity to give. (laughs) You know, hey guys, if you ever come to start to do that, warn your pastor first because it might give him a heart attack. Just saying, We normally don't have people begging to give. Verse five, gave themselves by the will of God. Do you hear their heart attitude? What's behind this? Why did the Macedonians have such a a vibrant, grace-filled response? I would contend it's because the work of the gospel is bearing fruit in their lives, right? They have this incredible gratitude for the salvation they received from God. When I think back to my dad, I told you he wasn't a theologian. He wasn't a, a teacher and all the, you know, if you looked at what impact did he have on the kingdom, it would probably be, you know, two big ones were he constantly shared his faith with lost people and he funded ministry out of the poverty that he had. And, when you, and the reason why is when you would talk to my dad, he would remember back on April 25th, 1965, when God saved him. And this big old strong man every time would tear up. He could never get past what God had done for him through Jesus Christ. How he had saved his soul, forgiven his sins, made him a part of the kingdom of God, changed the entire direction of his life. And out of that gratitude, there was a servant's heart. And this is what's happening with the Macedonians. They're grateful that they believed what the scriptures taught when it comes to this this idea of stewardship. That really, all of our money that we have, it's not our money. It's God's money. And God has invested a certain amount in each of us. And some people have more and some people have less, but we all have the same responsibility. Our responsibility is to invest God's money in a way that honors God. So it honors God for us to take his money and use it to feed our children, to feed ourselves, to put clothes on our backs and a house and to have, you know, things that we need to survive because God wants his children to have those things that we need to survive. It honors God to use money like that, to to set aside money for a rainy day and for an emergency and these types of things. These are all biblical principles that are part of stewardship. It honors God for us to be out of debt and to think about the future. It honors God when we're generous with his money and to manage it in a way that honors him. And so when you truly believe this principle, that all of our money is actually God's money, that he looks to us to invest and manage in a way that that honors him, that, that we are not owners, we're caretakers. We're money managers of God's money. When we embrace that biblical truth, it changes our relationship to money and God's resources. And it makes participation in ministry a joy. 
When we have opportunities come before us, our reaction is overflowing joy instead of overwhelming guilt because we're approaching it properly. With, with this emphasis that we see in 2 Corinthians 8, Christians joyfully asked an important question through prayer. God, do you want me to invest your resources in this opportunity? It all starts with prayer. It all starts with us surrendering ourselves to God, asking the simple question, do you want me to? Now, sometimes that answer is no. Uh, because you, you can't participate in every need that is in the kingdom. Uh, it's just impossible. But when it comes to missions and spreading the gospel around the world, more often than not, the answer is yes, because our God is a missionary God. Missions is close to his heart. The great commission is that commandment that Jesus gives to his church to spread the gospel around the world. And if we can't go ourselves, we give so that others can make this possible. So most of the time he says yes. So if he says yes, the next logical follow-up question is what? How much? <laughs> and when you begin praying and asking that question, I wanna encourage you, be ready, because sometimes God will surprise you. Sometimes God will ask you to do something that stretches your faith. Faith promise, it starts with our hearts, a heart of gratitude, viewing ourselves not as owners, but investors for the kingdom of God. And secondly, it stretches our faith. Verse two, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed and a wealth of generosity on their part, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. We understand why, the Macedonians gave, but how did they give? They gave, according to verse two, sacrificially. From a, out of a severe test of affliction, out of their poverty, they had been going through 70 years of civil war. 70 years. This region had been embroiled in ferocious civil war. They themselves had had plague and drought. And so they were, they were experiencing many of the issues that the Jerusalem church was experiencing, yet they gave even in those desperate situations. They gave according to verse three, as they were able. The idea here is they gave according to expected income. Um, for many of us, we give as we are able, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with giving in this way. What does that look like? In other words, those, you know, we have employment, we have income that comes in. We anticipate, a, if, if you're being a, a good steward, I have X amount of income. My budget is Y, okay? And hopefully, if you're being a good, uh, you know, um, trustee of God's money, there's money left over, Z. And so now you begin to say, out of Z, how much does God want me to give? Okay, so we're doing the math. This, this is right up a lot of you guys' alley, right? You know, this is, this is black and white. You can do a spreadsheet. You can figure it out and you can look at it and you can say, okay, I have X amount left over. Lord, how much of this should I give? And you do the math and you lay it aside and thank God many of you do that. And, and you have participated in the kingdom through expected sources of income. 
You're, you're, you're being a wise steward. But notice verse three says, they also gave even beyond their ability. Now we're getting into a, a, a grayer area when, when faith really can get stretched. You see, when you ask, you pray and you ask God, how much does he want you to give? You may be surprised with the answer. It will move you. My dad was surprised. A thousand dollars? I don't even have a job. And that's 20% of my normal income. He was moved out of his comfort zone. It stretched his faith. There was absolutely no way he could mathematically see that ever happening. So, so what I'm saying with faith promise, it starts with prayer. And you begin to, do, do I get involved? And Lord, how much? And sometimes from year to year, there's been times where I've been led in it and it's all about the math. But then there's been years where it's like, okay, I feel like God wants me to stretch, to get uncomfortable, to, to anticipate him providing. So his leading can look uncomfortable in our eyes. It can stretch our faith. It may require us to sacrifice, to, to reorder, for example, our budget. Maybe less goes to luxuries or non-essential items. You know how it is, guys. If we're really honest, we have our budgets and we say, oh boy, this is essential and this and this and this and this. But let's face it, if your job ended and now you're in crisis mode, there's a lot of those things that we say are essential that would drop off the page, right? This is actually what's essential right here. I mean, let's nod our heads. Let's be honest here, okay? Can, can I hear an amen? Amen. Okay. Well, thank you. One person. Amen. I understand. This is, this is a sensitive topic. Okay. But these things, God may be saying, I'm going to stretch your faith by showing you that you don't actually need all these things, that you can give these things up for the benefit of the kingdom. I don't, I don't know how you'll do it, but here's what it comes down to. Even though his leading may seem impossible in our eyes, that in order for us to experience this provision in this presence, God isn't asking us to have great faith. He's just asking us to take a step of faith and trust in a great God. You don't have to have great faith. We have a great God. And so it's trusting him. And, and so what Paul and Titus, sending Titus here, I mean, this is a, this is a, a stretch of faith for all these folks. I mean, those of you who do the math, if 2020 has shown us anything, our math can be upended very quickly, can it? And, it, and it's great that for those of us whose our lives have not been upended yet, but there's people in our church whose lives have been upended. We don't know what's going to happen from year to year. So even those who say, well, here's my income, here's my income, it takes faith to commit some of those funds because you don't know what's gonna happen over the next 12 months. So regardless of how God leads you, it all comes back to faith. But when we give by faith, we know that it pleases God, right? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So faith promise starts with our heart. It stretches our faith. Thirdly, it relies on God's grace and provision. Verse six, accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, 
and faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Verse 12, for if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Church, a giving spirit, a generous spirit, a desire to give back to God and to fund his kingdom is evidence of the work of God's grace in your life. Why do I say that? Because our default setting, our natural tendency is not to be givers, but to be takers. Our natural tendency is not to invest in people around the world and in the kingdom. Our natural tendency is to hoard and invest in ourselves. This is our natural tendency. This is a natural inclination. And so when we see the desire building up within us to invest in God's kingdom, to participate, to obey him when it comes to money, this is evidence of God's gracious work in our hearts. When we go from being a taker to a giver, it's evidence that the Holy Spirit is conforming us to Jesus Christ because Jesus was not a taker, he was a giver. He gave up everything in order to die for us and to give us eternal life. He gave us his life so that we could be forgiven. Christ is a giver, not a hoarder and a taker. And so when we see ourselves beginning to give, we should rejoice because this is the grace of God at work in our life, changing us from who we were before Christ entered our lives into a new creation and to our savior who's a giver. It's an evidence of the desire. The desire is the evidence of God's grace. And church, the, the provision itself, the ability to do it, having those resources and being able to invest in that itself is evidence of God's grace. The provision that meets these promises is God's act of grace in our lives. You know, when we do this, and I understand some hesitancy here that some have expressed through the years, I don't know what next year is going to bring. I don't want to make a promise to God that I can't now keep. So I'm not going to make a promise, but you know, I'll kind of participate as I know that it's okay. All right. Let, let me assure you of something that this passage says, you know, in verse 12, he says, it's acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. In verses 13 and 14, I didn't read it, but it goes on to say, listen, you're giving out of the abundance of what you have. If something changes and you don't have it, you're not obligated to give it. In fact, it's, this is not what we would call a pledge in the traditional sense of the word, okay? This is a faith promise. In other words, in faith, I'm expecting, believing that God is going to provide when he provides, I promise to give. That's what verses 12, 13, and 14 are all about. If something happens and God's will for your life is that, you know what, I'm gonna take you through a trial and a tribulation. You're gonna lose your job. You're gonna be hanging on by your fingernails for a while. You're freed from that promise. You don't have the abundance, verses 12, 13, and 14 say. You give out of what you have, not out of what you don't ultimately have. If God doesn't provide it, you can't give it. Now, now listen, this doesn't mean, well, okay then, I'm gonna, I'm gonna Lord, I wanna give, give $50,000 this year, church. 
Yeah, you know, this is not some prosperity gospel. Invest a dollar and you get ten dollars. You know, and, and you're and you're manipulating God to make ourselves richer. No, this is a humble posture before God that says, do you want me to participate? Yes, I do. How much? Okay, Lord, I'm going to begin to look to you to provide it. And that, and that may mean that we already have it under normal circumstances. It may mean that we have to readjust our lifestyles for us to have what is needed to, to make it up. It may mean that God has to do something absolutely stupendous and, and bring money into our lives that we didn't actually anticipate and expect. And when he does that, our first reaction is, thank you, God, you've provided the promise that you led me to make, not, oh, thank you, God, I can upgrade my car now, okay? That's the important distinction here. And you'll see that this is exactly what God does. It starts with our heart, it stretches our faith, it relies on God's grace and provision. Finally this morning, it enables every one of us to immediately begin participating in Jesus's mission and work around the world. I say this not as a command, verse eight, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. The Corinthian church had this great desire to participate and to support these saints in ministry. God had changed their hearts. They wanted to be involved. You know, I am convinced that people who have experienced Christ in their life and that forgiving, sanctifying grace, Christians who know Jesus as Lord and Savior, they want to participate in the work of God's kingdom. And they have the right motivation. It's there in verse nine. We are compelled to be gracious, to give and to help those who need the gospel because Christ gave up the riches of heaven so that we could have it too. And so we want to, but then we get deceived by a false assumption. In some way or another, it comes down to these words. I can't afford it. I can't afford it. You see, we're focusing on the amount. Oh, my little bit, you know, okay, I can't really afford to do much. This little, this is a, listen, start where you are. It's not the amount that is as important as the heart attitude that then obeys and participates. The gospels are filled with God doing great things through people who made what we would consider by human standards a small proportional contribution. I mean, think about the widow versus the richer Pharisee. The widow is giving pennies compared to the Pharisee's mega dollars. And Jesus says, it's the widow and her pennies that God honors and uses and delights in. Think about the small boy that comes to Jesus with just a few pieces of bread and fish, enough lunch for him but when he willfully surrendered that little bit to God and said, use it, it's yours. What did Jesus do with that small offering? He fed 5,000, the multitudes. God takes the little bit that you can do 
that comes from the right heart and he brings about a stupendous fruitful harvest. So start, if you say, I can't afford it. First of all, if you have a job in America, 99.9% of the time, we can reprioritize our life and do something. That's the honest truth for most people. Rarely, I have met some because of the circumstances of their life that they went through, they were going through a season where no, they couldn't. And that happens. But for most of us, I can't afford it. It's simply a, a, a recitation of a heart attitude that I'm not willing to look at how I'm investing God's money. So it starts with our hearts, guys. Okay? And so whether God leads you to give $100 or $1,000, when you promise what God leads you to give, and then you trust in him to provide it, and then follow through with that, and don't misuse it, you're going to find that you will be blessed. You'll find that it comes to truth that 2 Corinthians 9, Paul continues talking about this all through 8 and 9. I'd encourage you to read those verses. But just one verse from chapter 9. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. You personally will be blessed, but more importantly, God will use your offering to bless others, to build his kingdom, to bring people into the family of God. And so our little bit becomes an incredible blessing to people around the world. We see this over and over again. Our missions team does a phenomenal job they investigate potential partners. They, they test it. They uh, have a criteria. And then when we partner with somebody and we invest in church planning projects with them, we, there's accountability and there's examination. And we have some phenomenal partners, church, who are so grateful to all of you who continue to surrender your resources to God for the sake of the kingdom. If you'll turn your attention to the screen, I want to let you watch a video of one of these partners and hear their testimony in Manchester, England. Manchester's home to some 2.8 million people. Uh, our four universities attract over 90,000 students and they're at the forefront of scientific advance. It was here in Manchester that the atom was first split in 1917 and the first working computer was produced in 1948. We're a hub for music and the creative arts. Oasis, Stone Roses, take that. Even the Bee Gees originally hailed from our city. And today we're home to the BBC and, and many other independent television companies that, that broadcast the sporting successes of our two global soccer teams, Manchester United and Manchester City. Manchester's current vibrancy has a rich history. The city was founded in the first century by the Romans and called Mancunium. It was the birthplace of the Industrial Revolution when, when mechanised mills were introduced in the 19th century. Rapid industrialisation led to squalor and oppression of workers that in turn led to wide-sweeping labour reforms and even to the early drafting of the Communist Manifesto by, by Marx and Engels in, in Chetham's Library in the centre of Manchester in 1845. Manchester is proud of its history. It's proud of championing freedom and, and workers' rights, 
But the city also has a track record of resisting the claims of the gospel. Uh, back in the 17th century, Richard Hayrick, uh, Manchester's representative at the Westminster Assembly, he, he spoke of the desperate need for the gospel in our city. But that's still true today. The church attendance is less than 4%. Gospel church attendance, less than 1% today. Wealth, success, sex and, and power, they are the dominant idols. The, the worldviews of postmodernism and secularism are in the ascendancy. Yet, God is at work in our city. Before coming here, a local church minister told me that Manchester is the place where church plants come to die. But in God's kindness, City Church is alive and well six years later. Our launch team of 27 adults six years ago is now a church of over 300 regular adults today. We've grown in diversity too. Our church today is made up of people from all walks of life and from 38 different nationalities. But we baptised 27 adults coming to faith in Jesus from Muslim, secular, and New Age backgrounds. It is incredible to hear the testimonies of, of people like Sini, who, who was rejected by her Buddhist parents for her decision to follow Christ. Or, or of Casey, uh, the Chinese visiting professor who, who'd never been to a church before but professed faith just four days before returning home to take up a senior research post in an institute in Beijing. Ewo was saved from a Muslim background by reading the Bible and Nicola was saved through watching our online services during lockdown and then she brought her mum back to faith weeks later. God is at work. But we don't want just numerical growth, we want to deepen our knowledge and love of Jesus. To achieve that, we provide gospel-driven teaching and discipleship at all levels, our Sunday preaching, our, our midweek groups, and our discipleship programs. We're training for people for ministry and leadership through Smokehouse, our emerging leader training program. Our vision is to be a growing church that, that trains and generously gives laborers to resource and plant churches in Manchester, the Northwest, and beyond. So far, we've resourced more than 50 other UK churches through training, coaching and support. But by God's grace, we've even managed to plant a new church during a global pandemic. This summer, we sent out 33 regulars from City Church to start Trinity Church in North Manchester under the leadership of Pete and Mark. It's not been the start that any of us imagined. We've had to launch online. We're not able to gather together physically right now. Uh, we're still waiting on the school that we're hoping to hire to give us the green lights so that we can come back together. And honestly, over the past few months, there's been some days of real frustration. But amidst that, God has been at work. We've been so encouraged by the number of people who've engaged with us through our social media and online. A good number of people in the local area have said that they want to come and join with us once we're back together. Uh, we've been partnering with a local school in order to do food bank and serve some of the most vulnerable people in our local community. And our members have been taking the opportunity to meet with family and friends over this time and have really great conversations about Jesus. Mark had one just recently. So I was in a weird situation a few weeks ago where a car was on fire in the field just near my house. And as you can imagine, a lot of people in the community were interested to see what was going on. And so I ended up getting into a conversation with a man who was out walking his dog. We were talking about the, the bigger questions of life. Uh, what's the point of life? 
what happens when you die, and we really got into talking about who is Jesus. And it turns out this guy had a really strange view as to who Jesus is, but that gave me the opportunity to speak the gospel to this man, to talk about what Jesus did at the cross, where Jesus is now. And that's just one of a, a few examples we could tell you of conversations we've had with people recently. It's been really exciting seeing the, the beginnings of gospel fruitfulness and uh, making those connections with the local community and serving there. But of course, the planting of Trinity Church is just part of the wider vision to plant churches throughout Greater Manchester. Yes, in addition to Trinity Church, we aim to plant one more church and facilitate another seven plants in the city by 2027. We've already facilitated three, and with the launch of the City City Incubator last year and the launch of Gospel Coaching and the Northern Gospel Powerhouse Initiative in the year ahead, we're hoping to meet and even exceed that target. What happens in Manchester reverberates around the world. But we now have strategic church planting partnerships with Big City Church in Kiev, Redeemer Church of Dubai, and the Midwest Planting Network in the US. We receive interns from the US and we send out our interns to resource our partner churches throughout the world. We're praying that City Church becomes like the church in Antioch, a hub for resourcing mission throughout the region and indeed throughout the world. With the help of Covenant Presbyterian Church Palm Bay, that dream is becoming a reality. We're so grateful to you for your prayers, your encouragement and your generosity. God is using you to bless Manchester. Thank you so much, Covenant Press. That church plant, Trinity, is our most uh, recent effort there in Manchester to participate in the kingdom of God. So where do we go from here? Well, church, I'm going to ask you to pray. Ask those questions to God. You know, do you want me to participate? And if so, how much? If you need to study more, uh, we have Bible studies that we can provide for you and uh, so that you can become convinced in your heart that this is something that is of God. And then when you have your answers from God, we ask you to commit uh, go on to the website to covenantpalmbay.org slash missions and make a, a faith promise. And many of you, you are in a, a set and forget it. You've been supporting for years, and so you don't bother anymore filling out that card. You're driving our missions team crazy. <laughs> They need help. Would you please renew it? Even if, you know you've you've done it for years, we don't we don't all, we don't have your names necessarily. The missions team, they need to know the amount of everyone so that they can plan their budget. They have proposals. Uh, we either approve them or don't approve them in the next month based upon what you tell us. So uh, please pray and participate and fill that out in the next couple of weeks. Let's pray together and ask God to bless this work. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you've done over the last many years. The many churches like the one in Manchester that we have been able to help facilitate and partner with and help see these churches planted all around the world. The men and women who we've been able to support as missionaries who give their life to the cause of Jesus Christ. Uh, this all happens, Lord, because of the obedience of your people, people who have the vision of being used by you to build your kingdom around the world. I ask that you would grow that vision, 
Grow it among those who already participate. Challenge us to stretch our faith, to not be comfortable and just do the same thing from year to year, but each year freshly appeal to you through prayer. And then, Lord, for the many who have yet to take this step of faith, I ask that you would convict them in their heart. Make them a little miserable, Lord. I ask that out of love, not because I'm angry or upset, but because I know that if they will obey you in this area, as their pastor, we're, I, I know that I'm going to see you grow them as a Christian, and you're going to grow their faith deeper. So out of love, Father, convict, help us to participate, to fund the kingdom around the world. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.